Our topic this week is out of the book of Ezra, chapter 7, the decree. Chapter 7 starts off with the words, Now after these things, and the after these things is everything that took place in chapters 1 through 6. Now, the book of Ezra is very interesting because the first half of it, the first six chapters, were written by him, by Ezra, before he was born. I almost said he wrote them before he was born. Well, he didn't write it before he was born, but written about events that took place before he was born. And then here in chapter 7 is when he starts picking up on the events of his life. So as on our chart there, the first six chapters start with Cyrus letting us go back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. And so Cyrus made a decree that we could do so. God moving upon his heart in fulfillment of Bible prophecy, which we'll see here in a moment. So he writes a decree. We are allowed to go back. We go back. Few of us, not everybody, much fewer than should have been, go back and start to rebuild the temple. Then another couple kings come along and, and some opposition from some neighboring uh, tribes and people, and the work on building the temple has to stop. And then Darius comes along and makes a second decree. Darius the first makes a second decree, and the temple gets finished. And that's under the auspices, the governorship of Zerubbabel and the leadership of the Kohen Gadol Yeshua and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Then we go through this, and that's where chapter 6 ends in Ezra. Then we go 57 years with no writing by Ezra. Ezra doesn't mention anything for those 57 years of what took place. And as we see looking through the Bible, most of it is only written about when things were bad. And so for 57 years, we can imagine things were going pretty good in Jerusalem and in Israel, and for the most part, even in Medo-Persia, among God's people. Otherwise, he would have sent the prophet to correct us or to guide us and direct us. It's interesting that for whatever reason, Ezra doesn't mention Esther at all, doesn't mention Mordecai at all, he doesn't even mention King Xerxes at all. He mentions Darius, Cyrus, he mentions Darius. We'll see, he mentions Artaxerxes, but he doesn't even mention Xerxes for whatever reason. So that whole 57-year period of time, totally blank in Ezra's writings. It would have been nice if he would have had a few verses, a chapter, you know, telling a little bit about Esther and Mordecai and, and reconfirming that, but maybe he knew about the book of Esther and didn't feel the need to, uh, to rewrite it again. So the story of Esther takes place, and then after Xerxes, who's also known as Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, uh, same king, just two different names, then comes Artaxerxes and Ezra on the scene and the reform taking place. They built and finished it, right? So that ended that temple building. They built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So again, all three of those kings are mentioned. Xerxes is not mentioned at all. Now what's also very interesting is it says the command, that's singular, the command, although there's three commands, and the book of Ezra tells us all three commands. And in the chapter 7, we're going to have the full command written out by Artaxerxes. But the command by Cyrus and the command by Darius are mentioned by Ezra, but he refers to these three commands that took place over a, something like a 70 or so year period of time, yeah, close to a 100 year period of time, and he only mentions it as the command. So three separate commands spanning close to 100 years, and he mentions it as the command, and that's significant, and we're going to see why here in a little bit. 
And he calls them, he says, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Singular. Doesn't say kings of Persia. He classifies all three of them as one king and all three of their decrees as one command. Kind of interesting how he does that. And again, I think the reason is, is because in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 25, it says, Know and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be, and it goes through the 490-year prophecy, which is really powerful, which is really amazing, which again leads us to the Messiah, and not only his immersion and his coming on the scene and his receiving of the Holy Spirit, the dove coming down upon him and ministering for three and a half years and being cut off in the midst of the week, exactly as prophesied in the midst of the seven years, exactly as prophesied in that chapter. And then through the disciples and through the Holy Spirit, continuing to minister in Jerusalem for another three and a half years. And at the end of that three and a half years, the full of the seven last years of the 490 year prophecy, the gospel goes to the Gentiles and to the rest of the world. It was always going to the Gentiles, but more fully so um, at that time. And so a total fulfillment of this amazing prophecy, a very important prophecy in Daniel 9, rightly understood, gives us the starting point of the command, and then we have the dates, and then we have the 490 years, so we can clock the time period, and so we can know when the Messiah would come, when the Messiah would die, and when the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Those three, four really important events are prophesied in the book of Daniel. We see the beginning of it in this very chapter, chapter 7 of Ezra. So it's a very important chapter. Without that confirmation, we wouldn't necessarily know when to start the timeline to know when the Messiah would come. If you don't know where the start is, you know, there's no way you're going to get to the, to the right destination if you don't know where to start. Right? If you're told to come out, you, you volunteer, or you sign up for a marathon race or whatever kind of race, and you know where the end of the race is, but you don't know where the start of the race is, it's not going to help you out too much. So in order to be able to reach the destination, you need to know where to start. And so we need to know where to start, and Daniel, God gives Daniel the event that starts the prophecy, and it is the command to restore and build Jerusalem then until the Messiah will come, the Prince. So it's mentioned in Ezra, as we saw, the command. Now if it just said a command, then we might assume, well, maybe Cyrus' command is the time to start the 490 years, and then we wouldn't come out with the right Messiah. Or we might assume Darius' command is the right command, and we would go 490 years and we wouldn't come to the right Messiah. But it's the command, and it's all three commands that make the fullness of restoring and building Jerusalem. The first two commands had to do with building. Cyrus said we could go back and we could build the temple and help finance it. Then because it was shut down, Darius then really just reconfirms the building of the temple and the city. But it's Artaxerxes who adds on this aspect of restoration of the city and the nation. So thus all three 
added together, and each one helped each one, each, the next one, each of them worked together to make the command that's prophesied in the book of Daniel. And even the fact that the command comes is a fulfillment of the prophecy, a partial fulfillment of the, of the prophecy, because when Daniel wrote that, there was no hope that there was going to be any command that we can go back and have a temple. There was no hope that we were going to go back and have a nation. There was no hope that a Messiah was going to come without that promise that God gave to us, that there will come a command. And sure enough, as God prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, the command does come through Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, and finding its final fulfillment, full fulfillment, in this chapter 7. So a very important chapter. And that begins our time from Artaxerxes' command. We go 483 years to Yeshua's immersion, three and a half more years to his death and resurrection, three and a half more years to the gospel spreading to the world. So into chapter 7. Now after these things, the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of, and it goes through son of, 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 until we get down to son of Phineas. And we might be familiar with Phineas, we might remember Phineas, because he's specifically mentioned in the Torah as being in the wilderness with Moses during the time when Balaam, false prophet Balaam, comes and gets the Moabite women to go into Israel, into the, the, the uh, camp of Israel, to seduce the men. And because of sin, God's protection is removed, and a plague falls upon the land. When Balaam was trying to curse Israel, he couldn't because we were in obedience. And when we're living in obedience, doesn't matter what anyone says, they won't be able to curse you. Israel was living in obedience under God's protection. And so no matter what Balaam would have said, he wasn't able to curse the nation of Israel. But when he got us to sin, when he got us to compromise, we moved ourselves out of God's protection, and then the plague falls. And when Phineas sees one of the leaders of Israel take one of the Moabite women and go into a tent together, he takes a spear and he throws it through both of them at the same time. And then the plague stops. And so that's Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the son of Eliezer. And so Ezra comes from this line with Phineas, Eliezer, and right from Aaron himself. That's the lineage that Ezra is able to, has the record of, of where he came. So this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was skill, a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the law of God of Israel had given and the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the Kohanim, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nephim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So it says some of them, not all of them. Now a good question would be, what on earth were they doing there even during the seventh year of King Artaxerxes? They had the opportunity to go back under Cyrus almost 100 years prior. They had an opportunity to go back under Darius over 50 years earlier. And we didn't. We stayed in Persia. And then even here now, 14 years after Haman, 
And we're still there. And then even when we have the opportunity to go back again, with encouragement, only some of them went back. Most were still in Babylon, now Persia. And many of us in this world are still in Babylon. And many of those of the children of God professing to follow God are still living in Babylon. Oh, we might be professing God like Mordecai, might be living for God like Mordecai and Esther, but we're still not where God wants us to be spiritually, fully. We're still partly in Babylon. Our heart is still in Babylon. Like Lot's wife who came out of Sodom, but her heart was still in Sodom. And we're still in Babylon. God calls us to come out of Babylon. Come out of the confusion of this world. Come to God's home. Come to God's city. Come to God's heart. Be in God's will. Be about God's business. We spend so much time in worldly things and watching what the world watches, listening to what the world listens to, buying the things, the tinkly things of this world, the corruptions of this world, the vanities, vanity, vanity, vanity of this world, storing up for ourselves the pleasures of this world, the emptiness of this world, the entertainments given to us and fed to us, participating in things that aren't heavenly and won't lead to heaven and won't benefit heaven and won't benefit heaven on earth. God calls us to come out of Babylon. And if more would have come out of Babylon back when Cyrus said we could, and we had the resources, both manpower and finances, I believe they would have built the temple that Ezekiel prophesied. Several chapters. Ezekiel laid out exact dimensions that the temple should be built. But it was never fulfilled. And if, if, we, if we would have built it to that classification and that style that he outlined with the resources and the ability to do so, I believe as, exactly as the, the prophecy in Ezekiel mentions, the prince, no doubt the very prince that Daniel prophesied, Messiah the prince, would have come to that temple as Ezekiel prophesied and would have been accepted. And all of history would have been different and all the prophecies would have had been written differently. But because we did not come back under Cyrus, nor even under Darius, nor even under Artaxerxes in fullness, that temple was never built. And because we still stayed in Babylon in our heart and in our minds and physically, when the Messiah did come, we weren't prepared to receive him. Even though we had the exact date when he would come, our hearts were not prepared to receive him. While many did receive him, thousands did receive him, the leaders and too many people did not. Sadly, did not. And the same today. Because we're living in Babylon as God's professed people 
And not witnessing to Babylon, not testifying to Babylon, not being godly examples to Babylon, Babylon remains corrupted and very few people are coming to the Lord. And troublesome times will come. I believe everything could be different in society today if the professed people of God were living up to the fullness of the word of God. Because we're not, corruption has overtaken this country and this world. The gospel should have been spread to the world long before this. Disasters and calamities will come. Will come on these cities, will come on this land. Destruction as we've never seen before. Famine and plagues and sickness, disease, natural disasters, earthquakes will bring down the cities of this world. Verse 8, Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. So it took him four months to travel that distance. And again, the kingdom of Medo-Persia was even much bigger than that. It went all the way to Ethiopia and then the other direction, all the way to India. So quite widespread, four months traveling. And this gives us the exact date, the exact time of when the decree, the command to restore and build Jerusalem. He gives us the timing of when he left. And so we know when to start the clock. And just as prophesied at the right time, the Messiah came. 27 AD, was immersed and was baptized and started his ministry. Died on time and the gospel going to the world on time. Verse 10, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. There's a lot in there. That's everything. That's all we need to know on how to live. As our example, Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it. The statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is how he came out of Babylon. He began by preparing his heart to seek the law of the Lord. We need to have our hearts prepared by God. We need to surrender to God, preparing our lives, preparing ourselves to hear and to receive the word of God. Our hearts are not naturally prepared. Our hearts are not naturally open to receive the word of God. Our hearts are naturally born carnal. Our hearts are naturally deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. Our hearts are naturally enmity against God, enemies of God. It's widely taught that we're children of God and that we're created in God's image. We're not created in God's image. 
Adam and Eve were created in God's image. You and me were created in the devil's image. I mean, at least I know that for you. <laughs> but I guess for me too. That's why it's easier for us to sin than to do what's right. That's why we need to be born again. If we were born in God's image, we wouldn't have to be born again. If we were created in God's image, then why would we have to be born again? We're already in his image. But the fact that we have to be born again, and the fact that, again, it's easier to sin than to do righteousness, that it's hard to break habits, and even if we do break them in our own strength, we usually just transfer them to another habit, to something else. So we break from something that is acceptable, uh, unacceptable in society to something else that maybe is more acceptable in society. But we're still prone to addictions and prone to rebellion against God, enmity against God, hatred of God. That's why it's, we can read some novel with no problem, watch some junky movie with no problem. But to sit down and read the Bible and to pray takes effort. And even in our own effort, it's still just filthy rags. And that's why we need to prepare our hearts to seek the law of the Lord. So how do we prepare our hearts? We start each day by praying. We start each day by surrendering our hearts to the Lord. We start each day by acknowledging our need of him. We start our day even confessing, Lord, I don't even feel like praying this morning. I don't even want to pray this morning. I confess my carnal nature. I confess my resistance to you. I confess my enmity against you. I, I confess my lack of interest in you. Change me. Convert me. Take out my heart of stone and put in me a new heart. Put in me a new mind. Put in me new desires. And then God begins to work his miracle. And he gives us a heart that desires him. And then we can say like David, I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. Because we now have God's mind and God's heart. And what once was laborious and, and hateful to us now becomes our joy. It's a miracle of God. And we then love to read his word. And the things of this world, the novels and the garbage of this world become distasteful to us. It gives us different taste buds, different desires, different interests, different mind. Everything changes. The things that we habitually do, we don't want to do anymore. He changes us. It's a miracle. And it starts by preparing our heart every single day. Each day, preparing our hearts, starting each day with prayer, and then seeking the law of the Lord. Seeking his Torah, seeking his word, reading his word, reading it on a daily basis. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. We cannot understand it without first preparing the heart. You can read the Bible through. There's lots of people who've read the Bible through and aren't changed by it. 
Lots of people will read the Bible through and could care less. They can memorize it. It means nothing to them. A lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees knew the Bible very well. But unless the heart is prepared first, we're just reading it like another book, like a textbook, preparing for some final exam. But if we prepare the heart first, praying first, surrendering first, letting God change the heart first, then when we read the Word of God, it impacts us, becomes part of us, becomes like living bread that we eat. It sustains us. It has meaning to us. It has understanding to us. We're able to discern the spiritual aspect of it and the application of it. A lot of people calling for revival, and we're going to hear that more and more and more. Revival, revival, revival. Unity, unity, unity. But revival without being preceded by reformation. Reading the Word of God, trying to keep the Word of God, without first having the heart prepared through confession and repentance and humbling and submission to God. It's all just show. Might be popular, might spread through the nation, might spread through the world, and I believe it will, because all the world will worship the beast. It will be worship, lots of worship, but not according to the true law of the Lord. Fake laws, man-made laws, compromised laws, changed laws, Again, like the Sadducees and Pharisees. But not the law of the Lord. Not the word of the Lord. And so each day we need to prepare our hearts because the carnal nature, Satan, is constantly trying to resurrect that heart, the old nature back, the old man back into us. The old woman back into us. We need to die daily, Paul says. A daily surrender, a daily death to self. Preparing our heart. And then seeking. Seeking, not just reading, but seeking the law. Seeking to understand the word. Seeking to apply the word. And then he did more than that. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Knowing it but not doing it is not enough. It's only partial. It's knowing, understanding, having the law written in our hearts, in our hands, and in our lives. Loving the law and doing the law. Walking the walk. There's a lot of people who are trying to do it in their own strength, miserably hating it, rebelling constantly, but trying and trying and trying with burden on their back because they haven't first prepared their heart. So the order is very important. We prepare the heart daily, read the word of God daily, filled with the Holy Spirit daily, receiving God's forgiveness daily, receiving his cleansing daily. And then he empowers us with his Holy Spirit to then do. And when we're doing it in that order, by God's power, by God's strength, his laws are not burdensome. His laws are a joy. 
We joyfully want to keep him. We joyfully, joyfully want to praise him. We joyfully want to obey him. We joyfully want to please him and bless him. We love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. He fills us. He writes his law in our mind, in our heart, and then he causes us to do them, to walk in them. Makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between a caterpillar trying to fly and a butterfly trying to fly. It's all the difference in the world. Preparing the heart, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then God working through us to do his will. And then there's a third aspect. And all three, it's almost like the command, right? It's all three together. They go together as a package. Just one or two is not enough. He sought to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. When we're truly filled with the Holy Spirit, it'll come in us like a well bubbling up that'll burst out that we won't be able to hold it in. That is a real sign of a true transformed heart when we're sharing the word of God in love. Not just condemning others, not just pointing out their faults, not just pointing at the Bible and hitting them over the head with the Bible. But first, preparing the heart, receiving God's love, doing it obediently, joyfully obediently, and then sharing it happily. letting it just flow out of our lives. We'll have a burden for the lost. We'll have a burden for those who don't know the joy of the Lord, who haven't experienced the victory in the Lord, who haven't experienced the freedom in the Lord, freedom over habits, freedom over sins, freedom over addictions, freedom to come out of the world. We'll have a burden for them. We'll pray for them, and we will seek opportunities to share God's word with them. Instead of sending out just frivolous messages on social media, we'll be sending out salvific information to help people in their daily life. We'll not be so concerned what people think about us, but we'll be concerned for them and what God thinks of them and what they think about God. That will be our focus. That was Ezra's focus. And the reason it was, was because he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach others of his statutes and his judgments. We won't have to force it. If you have to force it, or if it comes across condemning, or if we're not obeying, not living it out, and all it means is that we haven't prepared our heart. Right? And so, might be reading the Bible every day, might be obedient, keeping the Sabbath, and returning tithes, and eating the right things, and not eating the wrong things, but still be a Pharisee or Sadducee if there's not joy in it. If it doesn't come forth naturally in the new heart, we're struggling with it, maybe doing it, but doing it in our own strength. Maybe telling others, but in a condemning way. All that means is we haven't been born anew yet. 
And the solution is easy. Prepare the heart. Go back to step one. And surrender to the Lord. And confess to him. Lord, you've revealed to me. I'm really not totally converted today. I haven't been transformed today. The carnal nature is, is there again today. Might have, might have been right with the Lord yesterday and, and every day prior to that. Walking in his joy, walking in his love. But something came along, distracted us, got, us eyes, got our eyes off the Lord. We've eaten the, the fruit of the knowledge of the good and evil. And we've fallen again. Distracted again from the Lord. Interested in Satan's ways. And so we might still be doing the stuff we were used to doing. But now it's become a drudgery. We just need to surrender again, prepare our hearts before the Lord. And re-surrender to the Lord. Reconfess. Receive his forgiveness through the Messiah. Receive his death and then receive his Holy Spirit again. Renew in me a right spirit, O Lord. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. A renewal, a rebirth all over again. Refreshed all over again. And then moving forward in the joy of the Lord. Obediently studying, seeking with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And testifying and witnessing. That's what Ezra did. And that's why God gave Ezra success. Verse 11, this is the copy of the letter that King Xerxes gave to Ezra the Kohen, the scribe, expert in the words and of the command of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. So the king gives Ezra this commandment, this decree, and it's written out here for us. Now, why did Artaxerxes do that? Why did King Artaxerxes write this decree, this letter, giving us permission to go back and build up Israel and Jerusalem? Why did he do that? How did God tell him to? Why did God tell him to? And why... Did he obey God to do so? God told Pilate to do that. God told a lot of people to do stuff. Why did he obey? Because Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord God and to do it and to teach others his statutes and his ordinances. That's what came first. Ezra preparing his heart and mind and then God opening up the opportunity for him to share it with the king. And the Holy Spirit moving before Ezra because he was praying for Artaxerxes and seeking to teach it. And he was able to share it with Artaxerxes in a powerful way that moved upon Artaxerxes' heart, that moves Artaxerxes to surrender and be willing to go along with it. And we will see more of the power of God in our lives and in people's lives as we daily prepare our hearts and our minds to seek the Lord and his law and to do it and to teach it. King Artaxerxes, King of Kings, to Ezra the Kohen, 
a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. That's kind of funny to have there in the letter, right? This is kind of and so forth. Maybe he was dictating it, and maybe he, you know, he started saying some flowery words. He said, you know, he filled it in with some more stuff, and so forth, writing some other things. And instead of the, the uh, scribe filling in some nice flowery words about Ezra, he just said, and so forth. And on and on. I'm a busy, it's a busy, I got a lot to do here today, and so forth. Let's get on with this. Enough of this. Pete for perfect peace stuff. These are actually the actual words of the law given by a king. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the Kohim and the Levites who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you, whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. How did King Artaxerxes know that? How did he know that the God of Israel is dwelling in Jerusalem, and that he's the God of heaven, and that uh, God has called for us to have the silver and gold and whatever is needed? How did Artaxerxes know that? Because Ezra told him, exactly. Because Ezra prepared his heart and sought to obey and to teach it. So Ezra told him. And who knows, maybe Esther, maybe Mordecai. Who knows if they were still alive and still around. It was only 14 years later. Yes, God used and moved. And so he knew these things. He was knowledgeable of these things. And God prophesied, Yeshua prophesied, fear not what you say when you're brought before rulers and courts and judges, he will give us what to speak. God will work out opportunities for us to testify in some of the highest courts, if not the highest courts of the land, if we're preparing our hearts and minds and seeking the Lord and the law of the Lord and doing it and teaching it to others. Now, we may have opportunities to do it in peace. We may have to do it in chains like Paul. But God used Paul in chains to speak to the highest courts in the then land. And he will use us too. Now it says here also that the king and his seven counselors, right in the middle there, the king and his seven counselors. How many counselors did King Xerxes, Esther's husband, King Ahasuerus, how many counselors did he have? Remember he just did the book of Esther, right? How many counselors are mentioned? Well, you had Haman, right, boo? But how many counselors total? Inner circle counselors are mentioned. Right? He's deciding what to do with Vashti and what to do to replace Vashti. How many counselors are mentioned? Seven. <laughs> Same thing. That's why I asked it. All right, seven. All right, seven counselors there and seven counselors here. So it's kind of a confirmation. So it's overlapping there with the book of Esther. And we're given a little insight that he is actually a person who had inside knowledge of what is happening in the kingdom of Persia, right? So it's not someone later on who just kind of wrote something, you know, to, and put it there. He knew what was going on. And we have a confirmation. Two different kings had seven counselors. Must have been the Persian thing. I have a seven counselors. That's how many, you know, were allowed or voted in or whatever. That was their 
the council said. So again, the Bible overlapping and paralleling itself and reconfirming itself, the testimony of two witnesses of the accuracy of these people knew what they were talking about. Both Mordecai, or whoever wrote the book of Esther, and Ezra. Verse 16, whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the Kohim, and to be freely offered to the house of their God in Jerusalem, now therefore be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offering and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of the God in Jerusalem. Pretty amazing. Go collect silver, gold from our kingdom here and go take it over there and build the house of your God in Jerusalem. Amazing. God moved in a powerful way. Whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. Whatever more you may need in the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it out of the king's treasury. It's almost like an open check, a blank check. Here, I'll give you all this, silver, gold. You can even do a fundraising campaign, free will offering, and we'll send bulls and rams and whatever you need. Go and do the offerings that you need, that you told me you need, that have you received the forgiveness of God. See, Ezra not only told them about the kingdom of God, the, the, the house of God, the, the Jerusalem, he told them the gospel. We need the blood of the lambs. We need blood sacrifice to receive atonement. Just as Moses told Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart instead, Pharaoh could have been written up like this. Pharaoh could say, oh, wow, for the God of heaven? Well, hey, let's do that. But he didn't. But Artaxerxes did. It'd be interesting to see if Artaxerxes will be in heaven. Certainly God moved upon him in a powerful way here. He was willingly obedient to it. He understood the gospel. He understood the need of the sacrifices and of the temple. I, even Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree that all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that wherever Ezra the Kohen, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed units. So again, he went to all the details and the king understood the needs. Told the tre treasurers there, Provide for them. And whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? So not only did Ezra teach him the gospel and the need of blood sacrifices for the forgiveness, pointing forward to the Messiah to come who would give his life as a sacrifice, but he also explained that, yes, you're the king of kings, but there is a king in the heaven above who brings wrath, who brings judgment, who condemns those. And maybe he told him the story of Pharaoh. Maybe he told him the story of the Passover. That that guy didn't allow us to go, and look at what happened to him. He and all his horsemen drowned. And so the king gets the message. There is a king above me who can bring wrath upon my kingdom if I refuse to obey. And Artaxerxes surrendered, according to the word of Ezra. It's powerful. Also, we informed 
you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tributes, or customs on any of the Kohen, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nephim, or servants of the house of God. I wonder if that's where we get the kind of principle that we have here in the United States at this time, at least, where congregations are tax-exempt. It's pretty good. And so that's what he did there. And it's also significant because we're seeing a shift here. This is, again, additional stuff that Cyrus did not do and that Darius did not do. Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. This slide is very significant. This is the slide, this is the section of this letter, of this command, of this decree that make it the final capstone of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. The capstone, the fulfilling of the command by Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. This is the section that Cyrus did not give and Darius did not give. This is why this is the starting point for the 490-year prophecy, which is one prophecy, 490 years in a row. No gaps, no splits, no delays. 490 years in a row, as it's mentioned. This is the starting point. Why? What is different here? What is different with these words? The other two gave money, the other two gave animals, the other two gave the privilege to go and to build the temple. But what is he giving here? Set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people. And whoever will not observe the law of God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him. What is he giving them? Authority, exactly. Political authority. Giving autonomy. Yes, it's still under the kingdom of Persia, but giving it autonomy as its own state, as its own region, to enact its own laws, as long as they're in harmony with the king's laws, and to execute them. You don't have to go to Shushan to bring a court. You can have your own courts there. You can have your own magistrates. You can have your own leaders. You can have your own governors. You can have your own system. You won't even tax. We're not going to collect taxes from your spiritual leaders. Giving us freedom. Giving us a city, a capital, and a nation within a nation. Thus, the restoration. This is the restoration of Jerusalem. The others were really just the building of Jerusalem. This allows the restoration. And we'll see as a result of this, Nehemiah comes along and builds the walls. When you have walls, then you have protection, and you're able to have an army to protect yourself, and they have the authority to protect themselves because they have the authority to arrest anyone who doesn't follow their laws and to execute them or imprison them. Imprison them or to confiscate their goods, gives them leadership authority. 
Crucial, very important. And again, this sets the time period for the coming of the Messiah. Thus, as a result of this, the Messiah is able to come on time. And this wouldn't have happened if Ezra hadn't prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach others. We want the coming of the Lord. We want the second coming of the Lord. We want the second advent of the Lord. We need to be preparing our hearts to seek the law of the Lord and doing it and teaching others and taking this gospel to the endmost parts of the world. And that's the end of the letter from Artaxerxes and Ezra steps in and says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing in this, as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princesses. Princes. He praises the Lord. That's important too. We pray and then God does and then we forget to praise. Ezra didn't forget to praise. He praised the Lord. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. He now had the decree. He had the privilege. He had the finances. He had the ability. He had the power, he had the authority, and he goes and he brings others with him. And so, as we prepare to pray, whatever lesson, whatever aspect of this message has for you, whatever God's been speaking to your heart and mind about, maybe you haven't been daily preparing your heart and mind to seek the Lord, if you haven't been starting your day with the Lord, maybe you're just going through life, Maybe it's a once a week or a once in a while experience with God. Maybe you're reading the word of God, but you're not preparing your heart first to receive the law of the, God, of the Lord, Lord God. And God's bringing that to your mind, and you want to now be on a daily, every morning and even every evening schedule of seeking the Lord and preparing your heart. Instead of just deciding to do so, in a moment when we pray, you can ask God to give you the ability to do so. For God to make it important to you. For God to wake you up early enough to do so. For God to instill it in your heart. And so right now we prepare our heart so that our hearts will be prepared every morning. Secondly, if maybe you're praying but you're not reading the word of God. Lots of people pray for lots of things. Well, God, give me this, give me that, give so-and-so this, give so-and-so that. Make them nice to me. Do this for me. But our prayers need to go beyond just me, 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 me. Ezra's prayers was to prepare his heart so that he could seek God, seek his law, law. So that he could do God's law. So that he could teach other people. All aspects have to do with others, not with him. All that mentions loving God and loving others. He wasn't preparing his heart so that God would bless him. Maybe our prayers had just been about ourselves. In a moment, if that's true to you, in a moment when we pray, ask God to give you a heart for others and a heart for him. Maybe you've been praying, but you haven't been reading the word of God. Then in a moment when we pray, ask God to give you a love for his word, a deep seeking of his word, to seek it, heart that seeks it, a mind that seeks it, mind that desires it and searches for it, for the law of God, the whole word of God. 
If that applies to you in a minute when we pray, you can confess that you haven't been and you can ask God to instill the Holy Spirit in you to give you that seeking after his word. Or if you've been praying and reading, but you haven't been doing, maybe there's some area in your life that you're not obedient to the word of God. Maybe you're obedient in some areas, but like the young man who came to Yeshua and said, I'm doing all those things, and Yeshua said, there's one area you're lacking. Maybe there's one area you're not doing. You know you should be doing, but you're not. Or maybe some area that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. Some area you know you shouldn't be doing, something you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. You need the power of God to give you victory. Power of God to do what's right, power of God to do, stop doing what's wrong. In a moment when we pray, surrender that to the Lord and ask for the Holy Spirit to give you victory in that area, power in that area, to do the Word of God. Or maybe you're praying and reading and doing, but you're not teaching, you're not sharing, you're not telling anyone else. You're just storing it up for yourself. Oh, you love prayer meeting, you love to hear the word, you love to talk, you love to talk about it with, with, with others who also know it. But you don't have a burden for the lost. In the moment when we pray, ask God to give you a burden for the lost. So you might instruct and teach others to be able to walk in his way, to prepare their hearts, and to be prepared for heaven. So if that applies to you in a moment when we pray, surrender that to the Lord. Or maybe there's some area where you're still in Babylon. Still living in some aspect of the world. We need to be in the world to witness to the world, but maybe you're still participating in the world and enjoying the world, again like Lot's wife. Loving the world and things of this world than the area that has become your idol. Like Abraham, maybe your son. Like Adam, maybe your wife, spouse. Maybe like Lot's wife, the city, the things, the things of this world. The home, the car, the boat, whatever. The stuff. And when we pray, you can surrender that and ask God to deliver you from Babylon and to bring you out of Babylon, out of the habits, the desires, the things, the frivolity of this world, the vanity of this world, drawing attention to self, surrender it to God, the approval of others, the praise of others, the compliments from others, instead of the compliments of God, the approval of God. When seeking those things, then surrender it to the Lord. That's going to take you out of Babylon, take you out of self, to fill you with his glory and his power and his mind and his might. If any of those areas apply to you or maybe some other area, maybe that God can prepare our hearts to be able to speak before courts and kings and not yield and not compromise to be a strong living testimony for God. Maybe God has blessed, maybe God has granted you, maybe God has opened the king's heart in your behalf, maybe your boss, maybe your landlord, maybe someone in your life, and you've forgotten to praise the Lord. In a moment, praise the Lord. Maybe God's answered some prayer, some petition, and praise the Lord. In a moment when we pray, use that time to praise the Lord and to thank him, to bless the God of heaven. So whatever area applies to you, let us pray together. 
Let God do his work. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, the real king of kings, we praise your name and we thank you. You are good. Thank you for working upon Ezra. Thank you for instructing us. Thank you for using him and using Artaxerxes. Thank you for moving upon his heart. Thank you for the restoration and the rebuilding of Jerusalem so that the Messiah was able to come. Thank you, Yeshua, for coming and coming on time. And thank you for being our sacrifice. And thank you for dying for us, liberating us from sin, removing the carnal nature out of our hearts and minds, taking it into yourself. Thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit upon us. Thank you for being resurrected. Thank you for sitting at your throne beside the Father. Thank you for pouring out your Spirit. Thank you for spreading the gospel to the world and bringing it to us and use us and spreading it to the rest of the world. Move upon our hearts and minds and give us a heart that loves you, seeks you, desires you, prepares for you, and is obedient to you and shares you with others. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.